Crossway Church Sermon Audio. Well, it's been several years now that evangelicals have identified the strident tone of the new atheists. In fact, it's been a few years and it might not feel like the new atheists are that new anymore, but you get the idea. They have a strident tone. Neil deGrasse Tyson is one of the most popular astrophysicists today. He's often on comedy night shows. He's got a big personality. He's very witty. He's very winsome. He's a very clear teacher, very accessible. If you want to learn about astrophysics, he's a great teacher. And he's also happy to acknowledge that there are many things that scientists, including himself, don't know. There's ignorance on many levels. And so there's a perceived humility in his approach to astrophysics, to his field of study. But in his book, Astrophysics for People in a Hurry, there's a... That, that is kind of funny, isn't it? That is, okay. I almost ran past that. Okay. Nerd alert. In that book, there is a group of people that he is not so kind to, and that he clearly has a beef with. He calls out religious people for ignorance and arrogance. But as we all know, if you're raised in the United States, and you see religion as the enemy, which religion are you really talking about? Christianity. Christianity. It's, it's why long ago people noted that that uh, when atheists, when people are atheists, they're still in the West. They're Christian atheists. They're rebelling against the Christian God. They're talking about Him. So not only does Tyson call out religious people, but he uses specific biblical language in both chapter titles and in the body of portions of his book that is meant to clearly mock Christian belief. It springs out of Christian belief. It it mimics the Scripture, but. It's meant to make a point sarcastically. And you wouldn't think that that animus was really necessary because it's not. But if you read that book, you're going to see it's clearly there, even if it's somewhat veiled. And not long ago, I was listening to a debate on the existence of God that included the late Christopher Hitchens. And Hitchens is quite affable as well. Even if he's a bit curmudgeonly in personality, he was sort of a lovable porcupine kind of a guy. But if you listen to his words, he is clearly concerned about the dangers, the dangers of believing in God or having faith in God. And so it seems that today, every atheist from Bill Nye to Richard Dawkins and everywhere in between sees religion and, of course, especially Christianity as the enemy of the state, as the enemy of civilization, actually worse than even those things, as the enemy of humanity and of truth. Now, this present reality of this, this feeling, this ideal, this animus toward Christianity. It's a painful thing. Thankfully, we're still relatively safe here in the United States, but it's a painful thing. And it speaks to the guile that's in this world, a world that is seeking to suppress the truth because of unrighteousness. And in case you question that statement, is the world seeking to suppress the truth in its unrighteousness because of sin? Does it lie because of sin? Well, Look at the revelation of God. Romans chapter 1 verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This is the condition of humanity unless there is repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ. Now, if the truth is suppressed, the truth of God is suppressed, then that means this world is full of lies, continual lies, big whoppers and little white lies, manipulation, mischaracterization, half-truths, exaggeration, so many names for it, but call it what you will, there is lying all the time. Humanity lies so much that sometimes we ourselves lie as a reaction as second nature. It springs out of the, the sin nature, the flesh. It comes out so quickly, it's almost like we're breathing in and breathing out. 
There's the lying politician, the lying government official, the lying advertisement, the lying co-worker, the lying family member, the lying neighbor. There's the lying Christian. And worst of all, there is that temptation that, that, that temptation that each of us has within us to lie about so many things, some big and small, but they still flow from that same cunning, from guile. Now, if you step back and you consider the guile that's in this world, the guile that's in the world and the guile that comes out of us, and some of that guile that's in this world that we're immersed in, it indirectly affects each of us, but some of it is directly aimed at Christianity and at God himself. And it may seem to us that in such a world, at such a time, that the obstacle to truth and therefore to peace or to hope, to the fulfillment of the Christian life, it can almost seem unsurmountable like an unwinnable war. But as we all know better, because we, we look into the Word of God, we peer into the face of our Savior, we all know better, right? We know better. And so as you can imagine, the answer for us in this world of cunning and deceit as you can imagine, that answer is not going to be found in correcting every single lie that's being told. It's going to come down to faith in God. And it's faith expressed in a particular way. In this world of guile, we need to express our faith. Are you ready? By being honorable. By being honorable. By walking in honor. Let me put it like this today. Be honorable in Christ and you will overcome the guile that's in this world. And I, I put, you know, I could have just put be honorable and you will overcome guile in this world. I think that would be true. I, I wanted to qualify. I wanted to make sure we understood it's in Christ. It's, it's Christian honor. Be honorable Christians. Be honorable toward the word of God. Be honorable toward what it calls us to. Be honorable toward the Lord and be honorable toward one another. Take the word of God to heart and keep it. And as you do that, you're going to overcome the guile, the deceit that's in this world. And so as we continue today in our series in Joshua, we're going to come to a story of deception and honor. It's actually honor in the face of failure and deceit. And so today we're going to raise our awareness of the guile, the deceit, the cunning that's in this world and our ability, raise our awareness of our ability to overcome it. And I'm going to give you three areas that we can be aware in. So first of all, be aware that the enemy reacts in varied ways. The enemy reacts in varied ways. Here comes one of those, uh, those uh, really low-impact sports illustrations, all right? Sports story. So in high school basketball, we were coached to rebound free throws. If you can get a rebound... You know, you've done something significantly good for your team. You've changed the direction. Now you get to go on offense. You have a chance to score. And so when you're, when you're on offense and your, your teammate is shooting a free throw, if you're the man in the second lowest position, in other words, the second closest position to the basket, so you're here and there's a man here, what you want to do is you want to shoot your foot out You'll, you might need this someday. You want to shoot your foot out as quick as you can and get your foot in front of his foot. Because if you can get your foot in front of his foot, then your body's in front of his body. And if the ball comes in your direction, you're going to get that rebound. Now, that's not the only strategy, though. Of course, it requires you to be quicker than the other guy. But after three or four times... What you want to do is instead of shoot your foot out, you want to use a little deception, a little guile. So he thinks you're going to shoot your foot out, and instead of doing that, you take a step back. Now, he's, he's pushing in this direction, expecting to feel your body on his. He's off balance, and when he goes past, you step in, you get the rebound, easy layup, two points for your team. And that's one way you can do it. 
And here's the point. If you think the enemy attacks the same way every time, then you're primed for deception. You know, if you approach the rebound the same way every time, you're primed for deception. You have to be aware that you can be deceived. If you think the enemy is going to attack you, Christian, in the same way each time, then you're primed, you're, you're, you're ready for a fall, you're set up to be knocked down. And this is part of what leads Joshua and the Israelites' leaders to a failure. So let me read for you verses, uh, uh, chapter 9, uh, verses, goodness, what verses? Verses 1 through 13. Joshua 9, verses 1 through 13. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland, all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country. So now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you? And where do you come from? They said to him, From a very distant country. <clears throat> your servants have come. Because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him. And all that he did in Egypt... And all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are, are worn out from the very long journey. <clears throat> now, before we get into the main portion of this, notice the first couple of Verses here. Notice Joshua chapter 9, verse 2. Notice the reaction here of most of the enemies of Israel. Most of the enemies of Israel gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. Now, it wasn't a winning strategy. They had seen it fail for the two kings of the Amorites on the, on the uh, east side of the Jordan. And they had seen it fail against Jericho, and they had seen it fail against Ai. But nonetheless, they did exactly what these other kings had done. They decided to fight, head-on fight the Israelites. And so the, the leaders of Israel have this mentality. This is what our enemies do. They come out to battle against us. They, they hole up in their cities. They, they meet us on the field of battle. And this is the, the direction that their minds were pointed in. And so they were primed for that response from their Enemies. But also notice the length that some of their enemies went to deceive them. They anticipated that the Israelites were thinking that way. And so they, they said, okay, you know what? We're going to use a different plan. We're going to use a, something that's going to throw them off balance. We'll, we'll deceive them. And so they, they put on full costume and they went to lengths to make sure their costumes were worn out, that they looked like they came from a long distance away, even though they came from about 20 miles away. They made it look like they came from hundreds of miles away. Somewhere far east they were coming. And, and in part of their deception, they used, they, 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 connected with the values of Israel. They said, 
They said, we recognize that the Lord is God to you and he is the center of your world. And, and guess what? We're going uh, to acknowledge that. We're going to defer to him. We, we recognize that he's the reason you beat your enemies. And so, and so in this, while there might have been some truth, and I think there was, that they were, there was some truth in the way they viewed this, there was also flattery. It was, it was this some acknowledgement that God is God. Not to the point where they would repent of their sin and beg for mercy, but to the point where they would try deception. They gave Israel what Israel wanted to hear. And then they recounted the reports. Did you notice when they recounted the reports, they said, we heard what you did in Egypt, and we heard what you did on the east side of the Jordan, on the other side of the Jordan River. But notice they didn't say that they heard what happened in Jericho and Ai. Even though that's where the scripture says that when they solved what happened to Jericho and Ai, they came up with this plan. But they don't say that when they report to Joshua. Why? Well, they said, we heard about you guys years ago. But because they were traveling from a long distance, they recognized they might not have been able to They might not have known about recent happenings, things that happened within a few weeks of that moment. And so therefore, they didn't bring that up. Do you see the lengths they're going to? This is an elaborate lie. It's guile. It's cunning. It's deception. Now our enemy, our enemy, the devil... Our enemy goes to extreme efforts to deceive us and move us away from faith in God. Most of you have heard of of C.S. Lewis's book called Screwtape Letters. It's where an older demon, a demon uncle is, is, it's a fiction obviously, but he's he's, um, counseling his nephew on how best to turn his patient away from the Christian Lord and toward his master, the devil. In other words, he's trying to shipwreck the patient's faith. And the one demon is counseling the other demon on how to do this. And let me give you, not all, but some of the strategies that Lewis imagines that that the one demon would counsel to the other demon from just the first four chapters of the book. Not all of them, and not all the chapters, but let me just give you some of them. So the one, the, the uncle, the older demon counsels the younger demon to get his patient to be concerned not with what's true or false, but what, with what's trendy, right? There's guile there. I'm always fascinated. If you ever read an article on fashion, oh, what was it? Oh, yes, yes, yes. This, this is why I read an article on fashion. I'm sorry. Let me, little divergence here. Okay, here we go. I have come under derision for my cargo shorts. (laughs) And sure enough, I saw a headline about how bad cargo shorts are. And I thought, I have a theory about fashion articles. And I thought, I'm going to read this article and see if it holds holds true to my theory. And sure enough, I read the article and it holds true. Every time you read a fashion article that's going to tell you how bad something is, I mean, they, they make it sound like this, this critical thing for your life. If you, if you don't do this, you're, you're going to die if you keep wearing cargo shirts. Don't you realize what a moron you are? Even though it makes a lot of sense to me because there's more pockets, you know. You can could, you could carry stuff. So here's the thing. You read the articles on fashion, and what do they say? Basically, at the end of it, they say, no one likes the way that looks anymore. And so you look dumb. So don't wear it. Okay, now, here's the thing. There's some wisdom to that, right? Like, you don't want to draw so much attention to yourself. Like, I'm not, my goal in life is not to draw attention to myself by being so far out of style that I'm making a statement, right? But on the other hand, do we recognize the difference between true and false? There's, there's no actually objective truth in why cargo shorts are bad. And so 
the question's not true and false there. It's what's trendy. And Christians can get caught in that as well. And that's guile. I'm not just talking about fashion. I'm talking about many ways of thinking, many ways that Christians think today, many values that are championed. All right, there's just one. Concern not with true or false, but trendy. Or drawn constantly to immediate sensual experience. This is certainly true in the world where the pursuit of pleasure is at the top of the list. And you can see this in the economy. Where does the money go? Follow the money. But it's not just in the world. It can be in the church too. Where sensory experience and sentimentality are the primary drivers of what matters rather than truth. Or how about this third one? Pressure of the ordinary without quiet time or peace. Now he's writing, C.S. Lewis is writing before smartphones, before tablets, before, before televisions were that uh, popular, before everyone had a TV or three TVs. And he's talking about pressure on the ordinary, so it, it keeps you from quiet time. And, and he goes on to talk about pride, a person who already knows everything. They're shallow and unteachable. Or, or someone who's so confused because they, they, they've got so much going on, they're so confused in life, they have no time for complex thinking. Or someone who talks about how imperfect the church is and how it's full of hypocritical people without seeing the fault in themselves. Or disappointment with church people. Or the, or the boringness of perseverance. The fact that perseverance requires doing the same thing often for a very long time, going in the same direction, a very a, a long obedience in the same direction. Or that people are dependent on emotional highs. And it goes on and on. These are just a few. The world is constantly lying to us. The enemy's constantly lying to us. Even our own flesh wants to join in the party. And, and the world is full of cunning to try to take us off track about our pursuit of Christ and one another. The enemy uses so many means, so many words, and so many people to do his work of overwhelming us in lies. Cunning is his way. And so you can't just look at the enemy's uh, uh, toolbox, the enemy's approach, and say it's always this way. And if it's not that, then I don't have anything to worry about. Because if you do that, you'll be set up for failure. And you have to be aware. And let me ask you, are you aware that the enemy of your soul is presently, desperately working to deceive you and render you, you, ineffective or even shipwreck your faith? Are you aware of that? Of the dangers, of the inroads, that this is happening? You need to be on the lookout for it. You must be aware. Don't be primed for a fall. Don't be easy to deceive. The way to fool ourselves here is to believe that that is not happening. Is to think that that can't happen. That we can't be deceived. That we can't be drawn away. That we can't be sucked away and tripped up. And so the first, and so this first thing, this first area of awareness is a simple call to wake up and be mindful. It's not always a straight on attack by the enemy. It's not, it's not always a, a directly, wouldn't you, here's a, here's a pile of money. Wouldn't you like that? Go ahead and steal it. No one will know. It's rarely that. It's usually something more cunning, more subtle, subtle with more guile. His efforts are often, if not mostly, subtle, stealthy, subversive efforts. And so be aware that the enemy reacts in very way, varied ways, but also be aware that the best way is God's way. The best way is God's way. Now we're going to start here in verse 14. We're going to go through 21. But take note because verses 14 and 15 really are the heart of this passage. Verse 14 through 21 of Joshua chapter 9. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. 
At the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they had lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Chephira, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leader said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. And so Joshua and the leaders were deceived and ended up blowing the assignment right here at the beginning, just when things were going so well. Notice that the Israelite leaders did ask questions of the strangers. They weren't simply dupes. It, it can be easy with so much time and, and distance between us and the story to think, oh man, they really missed some things. I would have asked a few questions. They did ask questions. They, they, they did their homework. They used their brains that God had given them. They asked, where are you from? They asked them multiple times. You could tell them the multiple times there, there's more details happening there. They're trying to figure out where these guys are from and they actually say to them, perhaps you are from among us. In other words, perhaps you're deceiving us. And so they tried with their ability to find out if they were being deceived or duped or not. And yet even though they did that, they bought the lie. Now isn't that fascinating? Even though they used their logic... They fell right into the deception. And as we know, as Hebrews teaches us, these are written for our instruction. And I think we need to draw this out of this. See, left to our own, left to our own logic, left to our own abilities, we will fall to deception. The world is so full of cunning. The world is so full of guile. Now hear me on this. These were competent men. These were men who understood the world. These were men who had faced death. These were men who had executed God's judgment. These were men who heard the voice of God. And yet they used simply their own judgment and they failed to identify deception. You know, not only is the deception of the world great and the enemy is very good, you know, full costume, Great stories, tells us what we want to hear. Not only is the enemy great at that, but inside of each of us. There are desires and cravings, James tells us, that want to believe the lies. Now, I'm not talking about the spirit that God causes to live within us and the ability for us to overcome that deception by the work of the Holy Spirit in us. I'm talking about the, the principle of sin, the principle that indwelling sin remains and, and it latches on to those lies. It makes us susceptible. And if we're not careful, it makes us a vehicle of that lie. Sometimes we're not even aware of how much is going on inside of us that opens us up to deception. And then, then we're unable to identify it and denounce it, but instead we embrace it and it affects us deeply. In the summer of 1991, I, I, went, I was a college student, went to Nigeria to work on a short-term missions trip with some wonderful missionaries. And, um, but on my way there, Plane leaves from Philadelphia, lands in Newark. When we land in Newark, one of the brake sticks, you can hear the pop. We're like, we're, we're all sitting on the plane wondering, what's that? We didn't feel anything. It wasn't dangerous. Later we hear, to our chagrin, they have to change out a tire. And so the plane, the flight is delayed while they change the tire. A tire oh, brake stuck and the friction made the, made the pirate pop. The tire, the pirate top. The tire pop. And, uh, and aren't you glad there's multiple tires on that landing gear? So the tire pops, they have to replace that. This makes me late for my connecting flight in London. 
because I have to go from Heathrow to Gatwick. It's an hour trip by bus. And I miss my connecting flight. And they tell me, British Airways tells me in London that I can catch a night flight from Lagos, not Lagos, Lagos, Lagos is Bible software, Lagos in Nigeria to Kano up in north. So I land in Lagos, but Nigeria Airways doesn't fly at night. So I'm stuck there for the night. And I'm young, and I've never flown internationally. I don't know what to do. And I'm in line. And a man walks up to me, and he says to me, Are you Peter? And I say, How, how did you know my name? And he says, I'm Vincent. And he says, They sent me. I'm thinking the churches must have talked and the missionaries talked and they sent someone to get me who happens to be an immigrations official at the airport. And so he brings me in. He, he said, asked me if I have any money. And I said, yes, I do. Because um, that's, the, that's the perfectly logical thing to do, right? And, uh, and he says, well, give me $100 and I'll exchange it for you. I give him $100. He gives me thir- about $30 back in Nigerian money, except that the exchange rate at the time was 11 to 1. So I should have gotten 110. And then he, he ushers me around, puts me in a certain place, and sets me up for the night. And I never see him again. You see, I was deceived because it seems so plausible and I wanted to be delivered. I wanted to be rescued. I wanted to get rid of this problem of being lost in a place I had no knowledge about. And so I, I, I wanted that. It wasn't a bad want either, was it? But it wasn't wise. It was because I was in a strange place. I should have asked more questions. And as I found out later, the church did not send him. And so I was just ripped off. Thank God nothing worse happened. You see, that's how it always is. It seems so plausible. It seems to make so much sense. It passes your logical evaluation. You tend to believe. The evidence seems to be there. That's how the enemy of our soul works with his cunning. When the lies come and shipwreck you and take you away and, and put obstacles in between and make it harder to love Christ and love his people. We're vulnerable because we have something going on inside us and it connects with the lies. And that leads us to the biggest miss here. The thing that Joshua missed. Frankly, the thing that I missed. He didn't inquire of the Lord. He didn't inquire of the Lord. The scripture actually says that he didn't inquire of the Lord. Didn't ask God. Now, Lest you think I'm asking you to pray and cast lots or something like that to figure out what God's saying. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. But recognize a couple of key things here about Joshua's situation. He had direct word from the Lord about the way he was to approach these kinds of things. So, so first of all, we see that, that before Moses passes, Moses says this about Joshua. He says, observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you. Those, these same, we're going to hear these names a lot. Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Parasites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Then he says, take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. So they're told, don't make a covenant with them. They're supposed to experience the wrath of God, the judgment of God through the Israelites. And when it says there, lest you become a, they become a snare in your midst, that's going to get spelled out here further in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 18. Again, Moses is still alive. Joshua's hearing this. And what does it say about these other nations that they're not supposed to make a covenant a bit with? And here's why. It says that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. See, so we believe these lies and, and we make peace with things in the world that we're not supposed to, with people in the world that we're not supposed to. 
with ideals and principles that are, that are different than what God has revealed. If we make peace with those things and we negotiate with those things and we embrace those things, then they become a snare to us and they affect us and we take on the abominable practices that they bring to us. God did not want the abominable practices of the Canaanites to remain And Joshua was given the resource not only to to bring on the judgment of God and to bring the promise of God to his people, but he was also given the resource to deal with this moment of deception. Because in Numbers 27, 21, Moses says about Joshua, And he shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in, both he and all the people of Israel with him, the whole congregation. And so when it came to matters of state, when it came to directing the people, when it came to making big decisions, like covenants with other nations, like peace treaties with other peoples, Joshua was to inquire of the Lord by going to the priest. And when he went to the priest, it was asking the Lord how he was supposed to think about it and approach it, what the Lord would have him do. He was to do this for matters of importance. And I wonder if Joshua and the other leaders deemed this matter too small. I think that could have been, maybe they thought, well, it's not actually a war, at least not yet. So we don't have to ask the Lord we know what to do here, and they, and they make the decision. Maybe that's why they didn't ask the Lord. Now, one of the, one of the clear areas of application for this today, and there are many, and maybe some are already going through your mind. But let me, let me give you one that's just, it's critical. And it's in the area of Marriage. We know from the scriptures, and certainly from Malachi chapter 2, verse 14, but other scriptures, we know that God hates divorce. He hates it. Scripture actually says he hates it. And we know that from the very beginning that when, when God puts a man and a woman together, no one's supposed to take that apart. And so he doesn't want divorce. But But we know that the world doesn't hate divorce. They don't mind divorce. Divorce is a way of life. We have no fault divorce in this world. And here's the deal. Okay, we recognize that the unbeliever doesn't hate divorce. But it's incredibly painful when Christians take on the same attitude. When Christians have the same idea. It's frustrating, it's maddening, it's unbelievable, it's, it's inconceivable that a Christian would take on the same attitude. I once heard a Christian man many years ago who was much older than me say to another, you better leave her before you spend your whole life unhappy. Goodness gracious. There is no knowledge of God in that. There is no inquiring of the Lord what the scriptures would have to say. And yet that too often is the attitude of people that that claim Christ. It is entirely based on sensory logic. And, And this is why, you know, it's the idea, I see and I hear that you are unhappy. And I have some experience with her too, and you're right, she's terrible. And you say you're unhappy, and the reason of your unhappy, for your unhappiness is your wife. So therefore, leave your wife and be happy. That's not the way a Christian uses logic. It's not the way we determine direction. We inquire of the Lord. We go to His Word. We go to the church, and we apply His Word. This is why it's critical that we don't just take one side of the story. And therefore, when you hear one side of a story, you are required to not be manipulated and deceived. But you are required to inquire of the Lord so that you know the truth. 
And this applies in so many areas of our lives. I want to make it clear, I don't think the Lord wants us to be paralyzed in life. So, so we're, we're, not, we're not stopping at every turn. We're, we're not asking God, what type of toothpaste should I use today? Or, or should I even brush my teeth that day? Just in case you're wondering, the Lord told me, you should brush your teeth every day. But we should be careful to assume that the, that the decisions we make frequently, that the words that come to us, the reports that come to us, the, the things that are in front of us, the decisions we need to make, we, we, should, we should be careful to assume that they're too small to inquire about. We should inquire instead of the Lord. Now, here's how we inquire. We're not the same place in redemptive history as Joshua. We don't have the prophet or the priest speaking directly the word of God to us. We don't go to the priest before the altar and inquire of the Lord in that way. But we have something much better, something much more. We have the Holy Spirit with us. We have Jesus walking with us. We have the church and fellowship. But we also have the revelation of God in the scriptures. And this is our... Rule for life. And so, we go to the Scriptures first. We, we see with the Scriptures. What do the Scriptures teach? And not long ago, we were trying to chew on an idea. Well, could, an un, could a man with an unbelieving spouse be a pastor? And some people were saying, well, the Bible doesn't say that he can't, so let's do it. What's the big deal? Well, here's the problem. The Bible does say a lot about marriage, right? And the Bible does say a lot about pastors. And the Bible does say a lot about sin. And the Bible does say a lot about his church. And the Bible says a lot about grace. And so if we study these things, we can gain a pretty good sense of application for that question. And that's the way we should look at Life. We start with the scriptures. We inquire of God this way. And think about this. The scriptures have tons to say to us about how we think about finances or resources. Want to know what to do with all that money you've got? Go to the scriptures. Want to know where to go or what to think about the money that you lack? Go to the scriptures. The scriptures teach us how to treat one another, how to think about one another. The scriptures teach us how to, how to think about an accusation that we hear. The scriptures teach us how to think about what the church is. The scriptures teach us how to open our homes and what hospitality is. The scriptures teach us where to put priority in, in life or how to think about future problems or death or life after death or how to think about sex. The scriptures teach us how to think about speech or division and unity. The scriptures teach us how to think about parenting. The scriptures teach us how to think. And what's true. And so we inquire of the Lord by seeking to understand the scriptures and applying it to life. We go to pray, God in prayer and we ask for wisdom and we don't doubt. That's another way that we inquire of the Lord. James 1, 5 to 6, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith. With no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That's right. God promises, dear friend, to give you wisdom. He's going to give it. All you need to do is ask and trust. He'll give it. God, you can inquire of the Lord also through the church, through fellowship. We counsel one another. We, we teach one another. Excuse me there. I went ahead a little bit. Uh, could you guys go back one there? Sorry about that. Um, and we, when we fellowship with one another, we're teaching one another. We're counseling one another. We're, we're holding one another accountable. We're encouraging and exhorting one another in the right direction. And the church also has leaders. People to whom help care for one another and facilitate ministry. And the church has deacons and the church has Pastors who handle the word of God, elders who teach the word, who take the scripture, the revelation of God, and seek to apply it to the life of the church and equip you in it. And so that's how you inquire of God. And we also inquire of God through a process. A lot of times we feel an urgency. We want to, we want to be done with it. I think a lot of times the reason we want to be done with a, a decision 
or something that we're not sure about, something that's on our plate. We, we, we want to mark it off our checklist. We want it behind us. We don't want to have to think about it anymore. It takes too much energy, too much effort. I understand. I get it. However, we got to recognize that God has us in a marathon in life. And so many times the very things that we're facing, the decisions that we face where the world is throwing guile at us and wants to deceive us, right there, it's a process. And so we go to the Scriptures and we ask God for wisdom. And we trust that He's going to give it. We go to the church and we let God work in us. And so it's a process. So always, 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 my friends, inquire of the Lord because His way is the best way. It always is the best way. Finally, not only do we want to be aware that the enemy reacts in varied ways and that the best way is God's way, We want to be aware that being honorable leads to greater honor. Being honorable leads to greater honor. Think about this. Aren't you, don't don't you love it when something bad turns out to be something good? Now, what if you had an old car you want to get rid of, but you can't afford anything new? And then your car's parked and someone crashes into it. No one's hurt. And the insurance company decides that the car is totaled. That's good news, isn't it? And they give you far more for it than what it's worth. And with the new money, or with the money, you can buy a better car than what you had. That's something bad turned into something good. But don't forget, this is a fallen world, so it's only good until your rates go up, which is something bad again. But don't you love it when something bad is turned into something good? And as we keep seeing in Joshua... There's amazing grace, even for the flaws and the failures of God's people. God can take the bad and turn it into something good, and he keeps doing it. So let me read. Let me read for you verses 22 to 27, the end of the chapter. And look out for God turning something bad into something good. Joshua summoned them, and he said to them, Why did you deceive us, saying, We are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now, therefore, you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers, drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now, behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. Take note. Take note of how honorable Joshua and the elders of Israel were. Take note of this. It's it's critical. It's important. They don't go back on the covenant oath. They're duped. They have the wool pulled over their eyes. Use whatever metaphor, whatever pithy saying you like. They got sold some snake oil. But they don't go back on their oath. Because when they, when they made their oath, they swore to the Lord their God that they would keep the oath. Even though the Gibeonites were lying about it, they weren't lying when they swore to God. And so they made the oath. And so even though the people were angry with them, their own people were angry with them. And by the way, you don't want to mess with the Israelites when they're angry. They do things like stone and crucify people. I mean, this is serious business. They talked about killing Moses at one point. And so this is massive pressure. Massive pressure on Joshua and on the elders. It's frightening pressure. But they say, no, the main thing here is that we swore to God that we're going to do something, and therefore we're going to do it. And so they were honorable there, and they didn't cry foul, right? Like I was, like I was saying before, there's a time to cry foul. 
But when you're, in the, when you're the head of God's covenant people, and you've sworn to the Lord at this point in redemptive history, you don't go around blaming the other guy. You don't do it. You don't say, well, I don't have to do the honorable thing because he didn't do the honorable thing. You don't do that. God, God doesn't look at it that way. God says, wait a minute, you stood before me, you made a promise, you swore I'm holding you to it. And they recognize if they break this oath, they're going to incur the wrath of God. And so even though the people are putting pressure on them, they say, no, this is the way. And they're saving the people from the wrath of God. That would surely come on them if they didn't. When I was scammed in Nigeria, this man took advantage. You know, I could have slowed things down. I I could have asked more questions. When that man goes away, I can be upset that he deceived me. But the truth is, if I want to gain anything from this, if I want to grow, if I want to gain character, what do I need to do? I need to recognize what I missed And I need to grow. I need to take responsibility for how I failed. You see that? I need to to say, okay, I need to learn to ask more questions. I, I can't jump to conclusions about who's trustworthy. I need to make sure I understand the situation. I need to inquire of the Lord. And that's what we need to do. We need to apply this to all Christian life. I brought up marriage a little bit ago. So, so let me say this. If you're married and you don't have grounds for divorce, remain so. Remain so and pursue Christ. Don't look for the way out. Don't make up grounds. Remain so. If you've been divorced and that divorce is unbiblical, if you didn't have biblical grounds for that divorce, then remain in your state. Be honorable. You can't go back and change the past, but you can with a humble and repentant heart stay where you're at and not make it worse and not make up reasons why you should get whatever you want now that you're divorced without grounds. And let me add this, if you've remarried and you've remarried unbiblically, if you didn't have grounds for your divorce and now you've remarried, listen, right now, be honorable and remain so. And pursue Christ in that marriage. How we need these words, not just for our midst, but those that we will counsel, those that are in our lives. Be honorable. None of these situations that I just brought up are ideal, but that's when honor matters. Honor is not ascribed to the person who goes along with the deception. Honor is ascribed to the person who identifies it and deals with it. Honor is ascribed not to the couch potato, but to the one who faces difficulty and perseveres in righteousness, honesty, and uprightness. And we can all be honorable in whatever situation we're in right now. Whatever your past holds. Whatever lies you've bought in the past. Whatever sins you've engaged in. You can turn now and you can be honorable. And it's a good day for that. When God's people are honorable, it's glorifying to Christ. And a great day for the church on this earth. So see that this difficulty and trouble here was turned into good. You know, more honor comes out of this than than you see here in the moment. Take a look there, and you'll see that the the Gibeonites are are really finally honest. You know, the gig's up. And they didn't deceive to go to war, did they? They deceived to save their lives, which a lot of times we do. We lie to self-preserve. But now the gig is up and, and they're just coming forward. They're saying, listen, we know that you had the power to kill us all. And we're just trying to find a way to stay alive. So, okay, keep us alive. We'll do whatever you want. That's where they're at. And they become servants for Israel. So, so this problem 
actually becomes a help to Israel. It must be nice to have a servant to cut your wood and draw your water. And so they become servants for Israel. They become slaves. But not only this. Not only do they get mercy and does Joshua honor the covenant. But take a close look and see Joshua 9.27. Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for what? For the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. Do you know what happened here? The Gibeonites end up being doorkeepers in the house of God. Doesn't the psalmist himself say, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to have all kinds of honors and and privileges and riches and fame. I'd rather just be close to him. Guess who gets to be close to God and to serve in his presence? The Gibeonites. Gibeon ended up serving the Lord. The Gibeonite people ended up serving the Lord for centuries, hundreds of years. I have an extended quote here from Francis Schaeffer, so I don't think this is working, so if you could project and just follow along with me. When the land was divided, Gibeon was one of the cities given to the line of Aaron. That's the high priest. It became a special place where God was known. Approximately 400 years later, David put the tabernacle in that city. This meant that the altar and the priests were in Gibeon as well. At least one of David's mighty men, those who were closest to him in battle, was a Gibeonite. At that important and solemn moment when Solomon, David's son, ascended the throne, Solomon made burnt offerings at Gibeon. It was there he had his vision. That's where he asks God for wisdom. When God spoke to Solomon about his coming rule, much later still, about 500 years before Christ, in the time of Zerubbabel, the genealogies of those Jews who returned from captivity under the Babylonians included a list of the Gibeonites. In the days of Nehemiah, the Gibeonites Gibeonites were mentioned as being among the people who rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. The Gibeonites had come in among the people of God and hundreds of years later, they were still there. You see, Joshua was honorable and his honor begat greater honor for himself, for the people of God and for the Gibeonites who were spared with mercy on that day. And those who were deceptive ended up with honesty and humility and ultimately honor the Gibeonites themselves serving before the Lord. I want to ask, I want to ask Tyler to come and the band. We're going to just sing a couple songs to close. And we'll sing one song to close. See, friends, you and I are like the Gibeonites. We come to the Lord imperfectly with all of our baggage, with even the lies that we tell others and tell ourselves about us. And would anyone contend that we've lied in the past? Every one of us has lied at some point. Of course we wouldn't contend that. So we didn't deserve mercy. But our Lord Jesus behaved honorably. He behaved most honorably. Would you stand with me please? And if I could have that last slide, there it is. Be honorable in Christ. And you will overcome guile in this world. You'll overcome guile in your heart. You'll overcome the lies that you're drawn to, that you can latch on to. Be honorable in Christ, and you will. Christ will be glorified. And your honorability will beget more honor for others. For others. Remember this. When Jesus suffered, part of his suffering was that all the lies of the world came down on his head. They said he was a blasphemer. He was the only one on earth who couldn't blaspheme because he was God. They said he was a liar. They they said he was prideful. He put himself in the place of Moses or in the place of God. They said he was a conjurer, that he was was a, a brother to the devil. That it was by Beelzebub that he cast out demons. 
They said that he should die like a cursed man on a tree in the worst possible way. All of the lies of humanity came down on him that day. All the lies that you and I believe sometimes, all the lies that we tell, fell on him. But he remained honorable right up to death. Giving his life so that all of that could be forgiven, swept away. And when he remained honorable, we were given mercy and we came near to the presence of God. So let us follow him in this world of cunning. Oh, give us the grace that he's already given. Give us the grace to be honorable, to identify the guile of the world, to stand up against it, to denounce it, to say no. For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.